Hola. Eh, es un gusto estar el día de hoy con una figura sin duda mundial, el profesor Noam Chomsky. Él ha sido distinguido por la Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México con el doctor honoris causa en 2010, cuando cumplimos 100 años de ser Universidad Nacional. Es un reconocido lingüista, eh, considerado por algunos como quizá el lingüista más importante eh, de los últimos 60 o 70 años, y también es un pensador político, un analista de la realidad y de la vida, no solamente de los Estados Unidos, sino mundial, por la cual también es muy reconocido. Es autor de innumerables libros, más de 100 libros, uh, more than 100 books, yes. eh, y también de muchos reconocimientos. Es un gusto estar aquí. Thank you, Professor Shamsky, to be with us. I, let's start with your biography. You're, you say in one of the, your latest book that your father was poor, he was immigrant, and he was able to uh, study a PhD and to become a middle-class uh, man. Uh, well, how was your family? How, why you uh, decided to study linguistics? Uh, uh, what you learn about this, your family, your experience? Uh, How was your life when you were a, a child, child and then when you became a student? Well, actually, my father uh, came from a small village in the Ukraine, a shtetl, a little village which was full of mud and medieval, basically. And he uh, emigrated in 1913. Uh, the, he was 17. He, uh, It was mainly to escape the Tsar's army, which was virtually a death sentence for Jewish boys. And uh, came across in steerage, uh, didn't know any English, no money. Uh, got a job as a uh, in Baltimore as a sorting rags in a in some kind of a company. And uh, anyway, he gradually, he, pretty soon, he was he learned English. He, uh, managed to go to college, uh, ended up with a PhD, uh, became a scholar. Um, uh, when I, of course, I didn't know any of this when I was a baby, but uh, But he, later. He, mm -hmm. he, you follow him in, as a... Well, a lot easier for me. I grew up in a middle-class family. My father was a... Uh, he, he actually directed uh, uh, Jewish education in the city of Philadelphia. He was a recognized scholar. Uh, One of the first, uh, I mean, I was old enough to uh, uh, read his uh, doctoral dissertation when it came out. Uh, it was a study of the 14th century um, Hebrew grammarian, which was, and had a history of Semitics was in it. And I sort of learned this as a nine or 10 year old child. And, uh, and he was influential? Pardon? He was uh, influential in your uh, interest to study linguistics? It was one of several strands that led to it, but I had a kind of a ch from childhood a sort of some sort of background in uh, uh, Semitic uh, linguistics and uh, studying Hebrew, learned Arabic later, and so on. And mm. that's why you study not really. It just uh, many things came together. Actually, I got uh, I was a, a 
16-year-old student in college, and uh, I had looked forward very much. I, I went to an academic high school, which was extremely boring. I was looking forward to uh, a college, which had all kind of exciting uh, descriptions of courses. And I took one after another. Each one was extremely boring. I was almost ready to drop out when uh, I happened to meet uh, through other connections, political connections, actually uh, a very uh, impressive uh, uh, person who turned out to be the, the leading uh, theoretical linguist in the country, maybe the world, uh, Zelik Harris. And, uh, but, but our connections were through our common interests in uh, um, kind of uh, radical politics uh, at that time. Uh, it was uh, a lot of it was concerned with what was in Palestine, and uh, uh, it was groups which were then called Zionist, or now called anti-Zionist, which were opposed to the uh, idea of creating a Jewish state, wanted a Jewish-Arab uh, socialist commonwealth in Palestine, which I was interested in as a child. He had been involved in as a leading. Uh, intellectual figure and activist, and uh, he suggested that I take his uh, graduate course in linguistics. I took that and then started taking other graduate courses. I never really had an undergraduate education. And your political thinking, uh, uh, the roots of your political thinking, many people say you are an anarchist or they say you are an anarchist socialist, or, but beyond the level, uh, how can you describe your main uh, I think, uh, ideas? Well, these terms are very vague and uh, have many different applications, but uh, there is a strand of thinking that uh, grows out of classical liberalism, has much deeper roots, of course. Uh, it uh, foundered uh, with the rise of capitalism, which was inconsistent with, I think, with uh, classical liberal ideals. and. Out of this uh, complex, there uh, emerged a stream, which is uh, one of the main streams of anarchist thought and action, which is fundamentally um, committed to a, an essential principle that uh, the structures of uh, hierarchy and domination of any kind uh, have no self-justification. Uh, the assumption is they're unjustified. They have to demonstrate that they are justified. The burden of proof is on any form of control, domination, authority. And uh, when it turns out that the justification cannot be given, which is usually the case, then that structure should be dismantled as a step towards a more free and just society. And that holds from everything from personal relations to international affairs and everything in between. And I think that's the core principle of uh, the anarchist thought that developed out of the Enlightenment and classical liberalism. And I, would, I think it's a guiding principle that uh, can be applied over and over again to all sorts of situations. And, uh, uh, from childhood, that I was kind of interested in these ideas. The uh, 
anarchist revolution in Spain in 1936 was of particular interest to me. Uh, by the time I was 11 or 12 years old, I was uh, spending a lot of time in uh, anarchist offices in New York and Freie Arbeit der Stimme, the Yiddish anarchist movement. Uh, in those days in New York, um, I don't know if you know New York City, but Union Square and down south, Fourth Avenue, uh, were full. It's now all gentrified and big buildings and so on. But then it was uh, small uh, stores, uh, secondhand bookstores, uh, many of them uh, run by uh, emigres from Spain. I found those uh, anarchist emigres from Spain. I picked up pamphlets, talked to people, learned things. Still have a lot of the pamphlets. <laughs> but do you think, for example, do you think that uh, something has been improved in after liberal democracy, or it's just another way of domination? Uh, no, I, I think if you look over the, the long stretch of history, uh, you find uh, fairly consistent progress. There are periods of regression, of course. But uh, many things that uh, we now take for granted were considered uh, unthinkable not very long ago. So I think over, over time, there's um, um, a consistent uh, tendency towards, uh, as Martin Luther King put it, uh, bending the moral arc of the universe towards justice. Slowly, sometimes it bends back. But uh, over time, I think one can see this tendency in human affairs. But for example, in your book of uh, Requiem for the American Dream, uh, it seems to me that you are saying today we are living in some way, uh, how can you say, a period of, of it's a period decline? Of, of a the period book. of regression, but uh, I think it's a dip in a long-term tendency. And I think it's now, we're now seeing resistance to it developing in all sorts of ways some of them constructive, some destructive. Uh, but out of this could come, can't be sure, but could come a new enlightenment. After this crisis? After the period leaving. of regression, which is, uh, we, we can time it. It's uh, uh, socioeconomic policies were instituted uh, pretty much globally around a generation ago, roughly 1980. Uh, all over the world in one form or another. In Latin America, it was the imposition of the structural adjustment programs, which essentially terminated a growth and development in Latin America for several decades, lost decades. Uh, the, uh, uh, then began to pick up again later, still other problems and regression in uh, the United States. Uh, it's the same in Europe and the United States. Uh, if you take a measure like, um, say, just real wages, how much does a person earn? It's been pretty stagnant for about 30 years. Uh, there has been growth, and the, but it's gone into very few pockets. So very high concentration of wealth, uh, um, uh, pretty much stagnation for much of the population. Uh, uh, the sense that uh, each generation does a little better than the last, and if you work hard, you'll get ahead. Uh, that's been uh, killed for many people, not just here, Europe as well, taken other forms in Latin America and Africa and so on. So there's you know, a world that's not 
even things develop in complicated ways, but uh, this uh, tendency is striking around much of the world, and it's related, I think, uh, to the uh, uh, so-called neoliberal policies that were instituted that uh, were directed towards uh, uh, undermining social and collective commitment and responsibility, uh, throwing people into a... Uh, a labor market in which they had few rights and could not organize, uh, um, or policies that concentrated wealth, cutting taxes for the rich, all sorts of others, have led to, uh, very naturally, towards a, an effect on, it, it sets off a vicious cycle. As wealth and power concentrate, uh, they uh, determine the way the political system evolves, which then uh, produces legislation which enhances the right of the powerful, and you get this spiral, which we're seeing in much of the world, that has led to uh, anger, uh, uh, resistance, uh, uh, what's called populism, which is not a very good term for it, but just the, comp uh, the collapse of centrist institutions, the, the sense of alienation from existing institutions, a dislike of them, resentment, and so on, which can take uh, very positive forms, uh, sometimes does, it can be very harmful as well. It has resonances of the 1930s, which are... Do you think that a new form of populism, right populism, could arise out of this crisis? Well, populism is a strange term. There was a major populist movement in uh, the United States in the late 19th century. It was, uh, it actually developed, it was a movement initially of uh, 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 radical farmers, independent farmers who were joined together to resist the uh, control over the, their lives by uh, Northeastern capitalists, uh, merchants, uh, banks, and so on, which had a which controlled the, the, the credit, the, the marketing, everything for the farmers and was leaving them in uh, great distress. And they organized uh, to develop their own systems, independent systems of, um, of production, of uh, distribution, and so on. Um, and it became a major movement, uh, Texas, Kansas, uh, all through the Midwest. It began to link up with the rising labor movement. This is the early stage of the of labor movement. and others. And uh, became a very powerful and important movement. It was finally crushed by force. Okay. That was the real populist movement. It was the most democratic uh, moment in American okay. history. Uh, what's now called populism is just resentment and anger. That's something quite Not different. Populism. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, and do you think there are new rulers in the world? New rules? R rulers. Rulers. Yes. Who rules the... Oh, yeah, there have been major changes. One of the striking elements of the neoliberal revolt against uh, uh, growth, the growth and development of earlier periods was uh, the enormous expansion of financial capital. By now, it's... I mean, you go back uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, banks were actually banks. Uh, they were places where if you had a little uh, excess money, you could put it in the bank. Uh, they would lend it to someone to 
start a business, buy a car, or send their children to college or something. And that's basically what a bank was. They were connected to the real economy, the real economy, and, uh, and there were no crises. There were no financial crises. I'm talking about the United States. Uh, the reason was that the New Deal uh, legislations of the 1930s were in place. And they, they controlled a financial system which was contributing to the real economy. And in fact, that was one of uh, several factors that led to the greatest growth period in um, probably in American history, the 50s and the 60s, very rapid growth, some progress on social issues, civil rights movement, egalitarian growth. There was the first period, and almost the first period in American history where African Americans had an opportunity to begin to enter into the general social life. One of the aspects of this period because of labor militancy and uh, uh, other forms of activism, uh, was that the society became more democratic and participatory. And one consequence of that was a, uh, a declining rate of profit. Uh, the corporate sector was losing, it was still very profitable, but it was declining in power and profit. And there was the growth of democratic uh, participation was quite threatening to elites across the spectrum, and there came a reaction. Now, the reaction to that is, in fact, the neoliberal period, uh, which has been pretty regressive in many respects, except in one respect, the rate of profit shot up. So that, so that was a success. Yeah. <clears throat> the homo lupus and, and becomes the, sacred. Speaking of ruling the world, the, uh, it shot up particularly in those parts of the economy which do not contribute to the economy, the financial sector. Uh, so if you go up to the point of the, uh, and then there was crash after crash, of course. You know, every time there's a crash, the public bills out, the institutions, they become richer and bigger than before. Uh, the last one was 2008. And right at that time, uh, in the United States, uh, for about almost half of corporate profits, about 40%, were in financial institutions, which probably contribute, they may have a negative impact on the economy. They certainly don't contribute much. Uh, these are, banks started being something totally different. Uh, these are uh, places where uh, all sorts of uh, complicated uh, financial instruments are created. Uh, um, all kinds of transactions take place, very rapid trading, um, huge amount of speculation. Uh, uh, the, the few, it's kind of interesting that economists haven't studied it very much, but the few studies that exist suggest that it's, uh, it has a, probably a negative effect on the economy. Um, you can see it in particular corporations. So uh, take the biggest corporation in the world, Apple Computers. Um, as it grows, it's, uh, it's funding internal to the corporation. It's funding for research and development, developing new products declines, and it's uh, funding for financial manipulations and transactions increases. Uh, this has happened across the corporate sector uh, because it's more immediately profitable, uh, uh, bonuses are bigger, you know, uh, so it, it means that in the longer term, uh, research and development will shift somewhere else. 
these are tendencies that are part of the financialization of the economy. Uh, same happened in Europe, uh, same's happening elsewhere. So you have a shift in who the, if you want, the world, what um, Adam Smith called the masters of mankind. Uh, the masters of mankind are somewhat shifting in composition uh, and, and much less, uh, f participating far less in the real economy. And uh, there is a general decline in democracy and uh, a, a disillusionment with uh, formal democratic institutions, which is quite understandable. It's very striking in Europe. So if you're, a, uh, say, a citizen of Italy, uh, you, have, you may vote in formal elections, but even, even if Italy itself was 100% democratic, wouldn't matter much because the decisions are being made in Brussels, yes, not, not in Rome. Right. Yeah. The, and they're being made by unelected officials. Uh, the European, uh, the Troika as it's called, the International Monetary Fund, which Italians don't vote for, of course. It's pretty much a branch of the US Treasury Department, uh, the uh, European Central Bank, and uh, the European Commission, which is unelected. That's where the basic the decisions are. The people who decide are not elected. The people who decide are not elected. No, they're unelected. Um, yes. and, uh, and it's led to, um, it's led to what's called populism. Uh, but I think of some better name is needed. It's an amalgam of resentment, uh, anger, uh, recognition of loss of rights, uh, loss of opportunity, uh, much of which is quite realistic. Uh, there's no, economic justification for it. In fact, if you take a look at the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, it's kind of interesting. Their own economists uh, conclude that these austerity policies are harmful, but they're, the political actors within the institution support them. And it's led especially for well, Southern Europe. And let me ask you another subject you are interested, the intellectuals. Uh, you have written about the intellectuals in the 70s you wrote about the intellectuals and now you published this year a book about the intellectuals and you consider that they have a responsibility and um, it's very interesting uh, because you say most of the intellectuals are not critical also they are e e critical intellectuals but how can what game can, can play the intellectuals uh, today? Well, or are the playing? Very, I mean, the very concept of intellectual is a pretty strange one. Uh, so uh, uh, suppose, uh, um, say in a university, there's a, um, a scientist, say a physicist, who won the Nobel Prize and uh, spends uh, 60 hours a week uh, working on his uh, um, on his uh, scientific problems and so on. Uh, we don't call him an intellectual. Uh, suppose the uh, uh, janitor who uh, cleans the room where he works uh, happens to be uh, uh, self-educated, uh, very astute, uh, thinks about social and political issues, has interesting ideas, uh, participates in uh, labor activism and social activism, we don't call him an intellectual. Uh, the, the people we call intellectuals are those, this category, are people with 
certain degree of privilege, uh, uh, um, uh, who uh, whatever they become do, public, they they somehow uh, deal with or claim to deal with issues that are significant for human affairs. Uh, those are the people we call intellectuals. They may not have anything to say. Maybe the janitor who cleans the floor knows more than they do, but they're the intellectuals. But then there's a general, going back to the question of responsibility, there's a very general principle that holds for everyone. The more opportunity you have, the more responsibility you have. And since intellectuals, by definition, are people with a certain amount of privilege, and privilege confers opportunity, which confers responsibility. Then comes the moral issue of what you do with your responsibility. Uh, you have the, uh, the uh, a moral commitment to, uh, take, to use the advantages that you have, which society has granted you to be uh, a constructive uh, citizen of the world to contribute to justice, to freedom, to progress, and so on. If you, you have another choice, the other choice is to serve power. Uh, in fact, you can be uh, uh, what Henry Kissinger described as the uh, uh, best intellectual. The person, he's very frank and honest about it, said an intellectual is a person who can articulate clearly the interests and concerns of the people in power. In other words, you serve the powerful as a, uh, someone who can uh, formulate uh, for them uh, the interests and concerns that they have. Doesn't matter about anyone else. That's one conception of an intellectual. Another is the conception of a person who uses the privilege and opportunity that they have uh, to meet the responsibilities of uh, any decent human being. It's the same for everyone but intellectuals happen to be in a particularly privileged uh, situation, uh, have opportunities that others don't have. So the responsibility is greater. And you can use, follow Kissinger's Avenue, or you can follow uh, the avenue of, um, say, Martin Luther King, to pick one. But do you think that in the, these 30 last years, the intellectuals pay a role in changing all these ideas about power, economy, no, they, they play a very important role. Huge role. Um, take, uh, um, let's say, take the um, George W. Bush administration or the Kennedy administration. Uh, they were staffed by intellectuals and the policies that developed. Uh, they called themselves, in fact, uh, the best and the brightest during the Kennedy years and the uh, Bush years, it was the uh, neoconservative intellectuals, and they, uh, we can see what they achieved. So but what happened with the all intellectuals, um, these critical intellectuals of the 60s and 70s? And right up till the present. Uh, what happened? Because they were more popular. No, they weren't. Uh, they weren't? No, the critical intellectuals of the 1960s were persecuted, were uh, uh, attacked by uh, government programs. Uh, uh, the, the marginalized, uh, uh, take say the uh, Vietnam War, yeah. the uh, respect, in fact, with George Bundy, who was the national security advisor for Kennedy and Johnson, the former dean of Harvard, uh, 
head of the Ford Foundation, leading intellectual figure, had an interesting article in Foreign Affairs, the main establishment journal, about, about 1968, when the anti-war movement was really developing. And he uh, discussed the role of intellectuals. He said there were serious intellectuals, uh, the ones who were called at the time uh, technocratic and policy-oriented intellectuals. Uh, they're the ones who were following Kissinger's model. They articulate the interests of people in power. Then there were the sort of bad people, the uh, value-oriented intellectuals. He called them the wild men in the wings, the people who, not on, who even go so far as to question the uh, motives and goals of people in power. They're the bad people. We've got to get rid of them. Uh, those are the critical intellectuals. Uh, in every society that I know of, almost, yeah, they're marginalized. In the old Soviet Union, they were the dissidents, not the commissars. And it's pretty constant across, uh, across the intellectual world. Well, um, let's talk about uh, public opinion. Let me ask you. You have been well known because you defended, and I think it's very, uh, I agree with the, your defense, that of the free speech without restrictions, you have been criticized because you consider that uh, the free speech, suppose free speech, no restrictions of any kind. Well, I wouldn't, I don't think there are any principles that are absolute. There might be, in fact, my own view is that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court in uh, 1969, uh, under the pressure of the popular activist movements of the 60s, uh, took a position on freedom of speech, which I think is generally quite appropriate. Uh, a famous uh, court decision, uh, Brandenburg v. Ohio, uh, court took the position that speech should be free up to the point of uh, participation in an imminent critical action. That means, for example, that if you and I uh, go into a store with the intention of robbing it and you take out a gun and I say, shoot, that's not, that's not protected speech. That's participation in an imminent critical action. Uh, but up to that point, speech should be basically free. Now this is like any general criterion. It, it's not an algorithm that you can apply mechanically. It depends very much on circumstances, all sorts of things. But as a general guiding principle, I think that's pretty legitimate. But for example, what happens with the hate speech? The speech deliberately? My own feeling is that the way to deal with hate speech is not by silencing it, but by confronting it. So for example, if a white supremacist uh, is invited um, to give a talk somewhere, uh, the right response is not to uh, silent, shout him down and beat up his supporters and so on, but to use the opportunity to educate and to organize and to confront and to develop um, uh, ex ex uh, exposure and uh, opposite and organized opposition to the ideas and that works uh, many cases so if we'll take a concrete case about uh, must have been maybe 20 years ago uh, a um, neo-fascist uh, group in the United States uh, 
planned to uh, have a demonstration, a march, in a town in Illinois, Skokie, Illinois, uh, which happens to be uh, have many uh, Holocaust survivors in it. And they were going to have a kind of a neo-Nazi march through the town. The uh, American Civil Liberties Union defended their right to have the march, uh, and I think correctly. And what happened is that public opposition was organized uh, that was so impressive and overwhelming that they simply withdrew because they didn't want to be confronted. That's the way you deal with it. Um, for example, lying in public. The, lying today, in public? As post-truth, this concept that, you, I mean, you, has different meanings, but you can, to you can. deliberately lie, yeah. to destroy the references of then the other. Then expose it. It doesn't do any good to have the state, to give the state, notice what we're, if you ban free speech, you're giving the state the power to determine what's true. And we know exactly where that leads. So let them lie. Hmm? Let them lie. If even people the lie, then expose it. Don't okay. uh, bring in the police to tell them you're lying. And don't you think that sometimes these are strategies to destroy the public opinion? Oh, sure. In fact, uh, we have huge industries which are devoted to controlling uh, public opinion. It's called the public relations industry, uh, the advertising industry. Its commitment is to control and manipulate public opinion. Uh, should we ban it by law? Um, should we ban one of the major industries in the world by law? Because it is committed to controlling and manipulating public opinion and does so very effectively. It drives people towards uh, subordination, towards marginalization. And in fact, it says that that's what it's doing. You go back to the origins of the public relations industry, uh, when people were more frank and honest than they are about it now, uh, they said that the goal is to uh, direct people to the superficial things of life, like fashionable consumption. Actually, I'm quoting from the business press. And if we do that, they'll leave us alone. They won't bother us. The conceptions, which in incidentally were held across the spectrum by liberal intellectuals, uh, Walter Lippmann, uh, uh, others, uh, uh, that is that the pub the conception is that the, I'm actually quoting now, the public are uh, stupid and ignorant. Uh, they sh they're outsiders. Uh, the intelligent men of the community, should that's us, should determine and control policy and we should be protected from the uh, trampling and the roar of the bewildered herd of people. Now, in a free society, they're allowed to vote, unfortunately. Uh, but we have to make sure that they are under control. You take uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the leading uh, theologian intellectuals, highly respected by the liberal community. Uh, his view was that you have to, uh, people are stupid and ignorant. You have to provide them with necessary illusions and uh, emotionally potent simplifications to keep them quiet and in the background and not disturb us. Those are fundamental principles of what we call liberal democratic society. Should they be banned by law or should they be exposed and, uh, and uh, 
uh, and, and confronted? I think the answer to that is quite clear. The First of all, they control the law, so you don't have to ban the law. Very well. Well, uh, I want to go back to the, these uh, strategies of the corporation you were talking about. What about, uh, have you been several times in Mexico? You have, uh, I think you understand very well the situation of Mexico today with NAFTA and all these kind of things. How do you see Mexico and the global economy and uh, the situation of countries like Mexico and Mexico? Well, um, we have objective information about it. Uh, since NAFTA, uh, Mexico has had uh, one of the lowest growth rates in Latin America. Uh, NAFTA was designed in such a way as to uh, undermine and destroy Mexican agriculture. Uh, Mexican campesinos may be very efficient, but they cannot possibly compete with uh, a U.S. agribusiness, which incidentally doesn't work by free markets. It's very highly subsidized by the state. So you have huge mega corporations which are subsidized by the most powerful state in the world and a farmer is obviously not going to be able to compete with them. So one of the immediate consequences of NAFTA is to drive people off the land uh, into urban concentrations. Uh, one Another element of NAFTA is that uh, these are called free trade agreements, they're not, they're investor rights agreements. Is to, one element is to that uh, Mexico must uh, give what's called national treatment to an American, a U.S. corporation. That means uh, it, a, US, a, U, a Mexican citizen doesn't get national treatment in the United States, obviously, but a, a business does get national treatment. Okay, that has going to have obvious effects. Uh, the, uh, uh, it's claimed that, Mex that NAFTA increased trade. You take a look at what it increased. Uh, the, what's called trade by economists is not trade. It's, uh, it's a, a decision, it's interactions within a command economy. So, for example, if uh, a Ford Motor Company uh, produces parts in Indiana and sends them to uh, Mex northern Mexico to be assembled and then uh, sells the car in Los Angeles. Uh, economists call that trade in both directions. But it's very much like in the old Soviet Union if uh, uh, parts were made in some factory in the Urals and sent to Poland for assembly and sold in Leningrad. Uh, we didn't call that trade. It's interactions within a command economy. Now, corporations are command economies. Now, they have, by now, global, since the 90s, uh, NAFTA's one part of it, uh, global supply chains, which uh, involve uh, interactions inside the mega corporation. Uh, many of the those involved may not even know what they're doing. They're just putting things together somewhere. Uh, Apple computers, for example, the design and development are in the United States, uh, the assembly is in China under the control of a Taiwanese corporation, which is a subsidiary of Foxconn. Meanwhile, the, they set up their office in uh, Ireland or in the Jersey Islands so they don't have to pay taxes. And uh, this is called a free enterprise in trade. Uh, so when you look at the figures for trade, 
cross borders. It's extremely misleading. Uh, people don't, corporations are secret institutions. They don't tell us what they're doing. And uh, uh, it's very hard to get uh, uh, details about their internal operations. I mean, you know, the government can do it under subpoena power if they investigate. Otherwise, you use indirect information. But it's probable that about maybe 50% of the so-called trade between Mexico and uh, the United States is not trade in any serious sense. Uh, the effect of these, and there are many other aspects to these uh, agreements. When Donald Trump says we ought to tear up NAFTA and start over, he has a point, but not the way he wants to reconstitute it. Uh, there are very interesting proposals that are coming out, mostly from Canada, about how to reconstitute NAFTA. Uh, one of them proposal is that uh, in Mexico, company unions should not be permitted. Uh, you should, there should be a freedom for independent unions to develop, not under the control of the companies or the government. That should be an element of NAFTA. Another proposal from Canada is that the laws in the United States, which are designed to undermine and destroy unions, should be abolished. Uh, there's uh, what are called in the United States uh, right-to-work laws. This is the age of Orwell. doesn't mean right-to-work. It means right-to-destroy unions. Uh, this is, uh, uh, these are laws which allow a worker and a plant to have protection from the union, but not pay dues to it. That's called right to work. It's obviously designed to destroy unions. It's probably now going to become federal legislation. The latest, there was a, the Supreme Court uh, was split on this issue, but with the new appointment by Trump, it'll probably go to accept it. The Canadian proposal is to uh, change NAFTA, to institute in NAFTA uh, principles which ban these measures designed to destroy the opportunity for working people to organize for their rights. Of course, this never gets reported in the United States. You're a responsible intellectual. You don't talk about things like that. Uh, but that's, these are directions, and these and other directions are ways in which uh, NAFTA could be reconstructed. Uh, they could be reconstructed in accord with the ideals of the man who's uh, honored as the uh, founder of modern capitalism, Adam Smith, uh, who was quite anti-capitalist, in fact. And if you look at his, what he, his own writings, what he says is he's generally opposed to regulation by the state, should allow the market to function. But if regulations are instituted for the benefit of the worker, then they could be legitimate. So fine, let's do that. Let's have regulations in benefit of people, not uh, private concentrations of power. Uh, NAFTA could be reconstructed along those lines, and it could be uh, a, a, an effective way of uh, organizing interaction among uh, uh, several countries in the, for the benefit of their populations, and not for the benefit of investors and private corporations. Uh, these are all but don't you think that this is not uh, possible? It's perfectly for, possible. For, 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 uh, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, because of global, globalization, for example, uh, China, uh, it was supposed with uh, NAFTA that investments of the 
corporations in Mexico uh, should come to Mexico. And then they went to China, or they go to Vietnam, or they go to other. Uh, they are speculating with the uh, low uh, wages. Who, who makes those decisions? Well, the corporations and the okay. and this. I, but, I'm not defending. Yeah, I understand. I but say, if I we simply ask ourselves who makes those decisions, then we the answer is obvious: uh, the banks, the board of managers, and so on. But why should they have the right to make the decisions about where things are produced and distributed? Why not the workforce? Why not the community? No, no, I agree with you. Okay, I am so, just questioning but if they are now in, in conditions to impose this kind fine, of... Then let's change the institutions. Institutions have been changed in the past. Until pretty recently, uh, slavery was considered legitimate. Uh, that was a major institution. In fact, it was the major institution. If you look at... Uh, industrial development, industrial capitalism, England and the United States, uh, later Europe, uh, it was very heavily based on slavery. Uh, the early industrial revolution it was based on cotton. It was textile production, required cheap cotton. How do you get cheap cotton? By the most vicious system of slavery in human history. Uh, that's the origins of modern industrial capitalism, of modern finance, that's how the banks developed, uh, commerce, uh, retail. It was all based on, uh, again, literally the most vicious system of slavery in human history. That's called free market capitalism. I mean, if we look at the actual history and compare it with the doctrines and ideology that people are told, the gap is extraordinary. And going back to the role of intellectuals, yeah, it's their role to expose this. They're in a position to do it. They have the resources, they have the privilege, they have the access, they can use it, and some do. And you think that, for example, the media are not uh, also under control of corporations? And they are. TV media. They are corporations. They're not under the control. Like New York Times, uh, Washington Post, uh, major corporations, parts of mega corporations. I mean, a lot of the work they do is extremely valuable. The uh, first thing I do in the morning is read the New York Times. You know, it's an indispensable source of information. Yes, but within a framework of uh, ideology and doctrine that determines uh, what is considered worth reporting, what is not reporting, how you describe it, and so on. So, for example, what we've just been talking about, in my opinion, ought to be headlines. Uh, but you have to search to find it. Mm -hmm. uh, you came here to talk about mm, today's environment. How do you see this? Uh... It's a real crisis. Uh, the, uh, uh, the evidence is quite overwhelming that we're moving towards a situation in which uh, organized human life in anything like the form that we know will be impossible. I mean, take something uh, be simply because of the uh, use of fossil fuels. Uh, the, uh, uh, if fossil fuel use continues at anything like its present level, uh, we can expect uh, the sea level to rise uh, several meters, uh, probably within the lifetime of our children. Uh, can you imagine what life would be like if uh, the... Uh, I'll just take the prediction of the a national uh, 
um, uh, climate commission in the United States. It's a pretty conservative outfit. A couple of weeks ago, they came out with their projections for the next coming years. One of them is that at the current level of fossil fuel use, uh, the sea level will rise more than two meters, may rise more than two meters, there's some uncertainty, uh, but before the end of this century. Uh, just think what the world would be like with two meters rise in sea level. Uh, you can ask what Mexico would be like, yes. but ask what Bangladesh would be like. Uh, it's a flat coastal plain with hundreds of millions of people. Uh, what happens to them? Um, and you get a, you, you may have, instead of uh, 60 million refugees, you may have uh, 500 million. Uh, where are they going to go? Uh, what's going to happen to countries like South Asia, where the water supply, which is already in danger, will be devastated? And you have two nuclear powers, in India and Pakistan, fighting for the same water. Uh, what's the world going to look like when city, coastal cities are underwater, when... Uh, Agriculture is undermined. Uh, I mean, the prospects are devastating. It could be much worse. There are things that are uncertain. So uh, there's what's called permafrost of, uh, under, uh, right near the surface, yes. in the huge areas, a huge amount of carbon in there. What it's starting to melt. Uh, what happens when it melts? Well, you could have sudden, so-called nonlinear processes suddenly exploding. Uh, there are other aspects buried in the permafrost are uh, ancient bacteria from long time ago. They start appearing. Humans have, and other animals have no immunity to them. Uh, what happens then? These are the circumstances we're facing. And how are we facing them? By continuing and maximizing uh, fossil fuel use. So a couple of months ago, you may have seen uh, Mexico announced uh, a great discovery world. of uh, new uh, opportunities world. in the Gulf. We can bring in foreign corporations, produce a lot more fossil fuels, and destroy the life of our grandchildren. Uh, those are the circumstances. But again, it doesn't seem that any country is really taking serious uh, measures against uh, this warming. Germany says that they are doing things, but they are consuming the energy of France, which is uh, uranium uh, energy. Uh, a, I mean, I, I don't, I think it's a little better than that. The, uh, there are uh, uh, steps being taken to restrict, uh, the, to, to move towards a more sustainable energy system. Uh, they're being taken in many places. Uh, they're not enough, but they're happening. Uh, and. Uh, uh, a very harmful uh, development was uh, that um, last November uh, an administration was elected in the United States uh, which uh, denies that climate yes. change is taking place and is uh, uh, calling for expanding the use of the most destructive fossil fuels. But even in the United States, it's a split story. So if you go to the there's a conference right now, an uh, international conference, UN conference in Bonn, uh, attempting to, uh, the countries of the world, attempting to move forward and setting standards for uh, moving towards sustainable energy. The United States has two delegations there. One of them is from the federal government, which is saying, let's have more coal, let's destroy the environment. The other is from uh, states and cities, 
Jerry Brown, the governor of California, Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, others are meeting also in Bonn, and they're saying we will join the international effort. And it's a, it's a real battle and struggle. It has to be solved pretty quickly. We don't have a lot of time to deal with this. It's a, one of the two major existential crises that current generations now face. The other is the threat of nuclear war also expanding. Professor Chomsky, thank you for mm. this interview and nice to have you here in Mexico. Thank you. <laughs> Hemos tenido el privilegio de estar con el profesor Noam Chomsky, un intelectual sin duda reconocido en todo el mundo y que cuyas preocupaciones abordan temas como el de la democracia que hemos platicado con él y los riesgos, la reducción de la democracia, temas como la economía y la globalización y las nuevas estructuras de poder que gobiernan el mundo y también algo muy importante, el papel de los intelectuales. A pesar de lo que hemos estado viendo y platicando con él, él tiene una visión positiva frente a los problemas de medio ambiente, frente a los problemas de una democracia en crisis, incluso frente a los problemas del TLC, hay alternativas que pueden, podemos seguir y que son en mucho lo que los intelectuales pueden decir, lo que los intelectuales nos pueden descubrir y revelar. Intelectuales como, por ejemplo, el mismo Noam Chomsky. Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you.